significant way in James chapter 2. And James would say that a mentality of favoritism or partiality or discrimination on the negative side, he would say this is incompatible with wisdom. The whole purpose of the book of James is for us to pursue wisdom, to be mature Christ followers. Wisdom for wholeness is the title of our series. And James would say this sort of mentality is not suited for those who are pursuing maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is it not suited for you and I as we're pursuing Christ, but this sort of mentality is actually dangerous for the fellowship and the unity of the church body. This is something that brings division in a subtle way into the church. And so we have to root this out in our lives if it's present in any way. We need to recognize partiality and favoritism and discrimination for what they are in our lives, and we need to deal with them as quickly as we can. So, this week and next week, I'm going to study James 2, verses 1 through 13. That's where we'll be. And I want to show you four problems with partiality. Four problems with partiality for those who are pursuing wisdom in Christ. And I hope that's all of us. I want to be wise in Christ. I want to be whole as a believer. And you can't be a person prone to favoritism and partiality in dealing with others. And so four problems with partiality for those who are pursuing wisdom in Christ. The first one of these is in verse 1. And here's, here's how I would phrase it. The first problem. You can't have partiality and true faith. They're incompatible with one another. So you can see in verse 1 in chapter 2, James moves into a whole new section of the letter. And we've talked about in the book of James in our study, when he uses this phrase, my brothers, and gives a command with that phrase, that means he's moving into a new section. And you can see that in verse 1. My brothers, here's the command, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he's beginning a new section here, and he's going to go all the way down to verse 13 in this section. And so he's stating the main idea here at the beginning. This is like a summary statement, a thesis statement in verse 1. This is the whole of verses 1 through 13 in one sentence. That's what he does here. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so as you read this, you see that word partiality. You don't hear that word very much. And so you ask, what is this? What am I not supposed to have? Well, you'll see a really clear example of this in verses 2 and 3. And we'll get more detail when we get there. But the basic idea in this word, kind of the root idea, is to receive someone's face. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to receive someone's face? The idea is that you treat a person differently based on some external criteria. There's some standard that you are holding to and that causes you to receive someone's face in a different way, to treat them differently. It's to judge and you may not even think you're judging, but it's to judge someone to determine their value or worth based on some external criteria. Now, this criteria can be 
This can work in both a positive and a negative direction. You can exalt someone based on some external criteria, or we used the word discriminate earlier. You can discriminate against someone based on some external criteria. Now, it may surprise you to know that this idea of partiality or favoritism is all over the Old Testament. God is very clear to Israel that they are not to hold partiality. They're not to practice discrimination or partiality toward other people. There's a whole host of texts that we could read, but I think the one that James has in mind and he's working off of here is found in Leviticus 19 and verse 15. And I'll read that to you. You don't have to turn there. Here's what he says, or what the Old Testament law says. You shall do no injustice in court. So you've got this situation, a court situation where there's two sides, and the judge has to determine which side is right, which side is wrong. So you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You can see both sides there, right? There's a tendency to be partial to the poor, to discriminate against the poor because of their lack of resources, or to defer to those who are wealthy because they have a lot of resources, and maybe I can get something out of this if I show them partiality. But instead, Israel is to be righteous. They're to be just in their dealings with one another. Now, James, in chapter 2 and verse 1, he makes it very clear. You cannot hold partiality and faith in Christ. It's impossible to do both of those things. It should not be that believers are walking around showing favoritism and discrimination and partiality. It's not compatible with our faith. Do you remember in the book of James, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 8, James loves this description of a double-minded man, right? It's the same description that he gives in chapter 4, verse 8. There's this double-minded man. And the theme of James is for us to be whole, for us to be singly focused and to be complete. And then he describes the opposite end of that, which is the double-minded man. Well, this guy here who shows partiality is double-minded. He's trying to hold on to faith. And he's trying to hold on to his unjust judgment of others. And James says it's impossible. You are double-minded. You're not whole when you do that. You're split into two pieces. Your soul is fragmented when you live this way. Acting with favoritism while at the same time trying to be mature in Christ cannot coexist. It's like trying to hold a snake in one hand and a mouse in the other hand and to have both of them in your lap at the same time. I mean, what's going to happen? The mouse is going to try and get away and the snake is going to try to chase the mouse and you cannot hold on to both of them in your lap at the same time. That's what partiality and true faith in Christ are like. They do not go together. They do not peacefully coexist. Why? Why can't these two mentalities exist together? Look at the end of verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why. Because of who he is. Because he is the Lord of glory. 
Now, this description of Christ is pointing us to a particular moment in the life of Jesus. What moment in the life of Jesus brought him glory and exaltation? Well, Philippians chapter 2 tells us about this moment. Here's what it says, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that humbling, because of him going, being debased at the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He's glorified, he's exalted by becoming poor for us. Humiliation was the pathway to exaltation. And so here's what James is saying. If this Lord of glory, who by all external appearances was nobody that we would be interested in, we would not have wanted to be near him in his death as he was humiliated before death. But if this Lord of glory is now the exalted king, socioeconomic status when Jesus became poor and was humiliated for us. You can't. You can't hold faith in the one who was made poor and then exalted and at the same time show partiality to others based on external unjust criteria. It's incompatible. And that brings us to our second problem with partiality. This is in verses 2 to 4. You judge based on evil criteria. So the first problem is you can't have partiality in true faith because of who we worship. The second problem is that when you show partiality, you are judging based on evil criteria. This gets to the real heart of the issue in verses 2 to 4. So we've defined partiality as receiving someone's face, right? It's making an unjust or unrighteous distinction between people based on something external. But now James gives us what I think is a hypothetical example of this. Look at verse 2. This gets to the heart of the issue. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, so I'm sure if you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this example given before, right? And here's what we assume James is doing. He's describing a church service. And so we all sort of get this image in our mind of this church service, right? So if we were meeting inside, we're all seated on Sunday morning, we're ready to start. It's about a minute before the service is supposed to start, and two visitors walk into the back door at the same time. One visitor is dressed in a sharp way. This guy is good looking. He's put together. He has a big smile on his face. He's approachable. He smells nice. <laughs> the other guy has tattered clothes. 
They look old. He's a little bit grumpy. Doesn't seem real approachable. Not someone you'd want to eat a meal with. His hair is kind of oily. Kai hasn't showered in a few days. It's a bit of an odor that trails behind him as he comes in. So we all sort of picture this scenario. And that could be what James is talking about. But I think when we picture that scenario, we all think, well, I would never treat those people differently. And so we think that's all James is talking about. And then we sort of dismiss this whole section and think, well, I would never do that. I would never treat someone that rolled into the back of our church differently because of an external appearance. And James could be talking about that, and I think that certainly applies. But I think what he's doing here is he's giving us this hypothetical situation that is almost so over the top that it highlights the real problem and shows us just how crazy it is to sin in this way, to show favoritism or partiality. Look at the reaction of those who are assembled. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You can see that the reaction of those in the building is that they pay attention to the one who is dressed nice. They have a high regard for him. They show deference to him. They're interested in him. They notice him. Pay attention to him. They want to treat him well. Why? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But they don't treat the other guy as well. Think of this as, as something like the Good Samaritan, right? Was that a real situation that Jesus was giving us? Maybe. It could have really happened. But it's a story, it's a parable intended to teach us about morality and about our responsibility to others. It's dramatic, and it highlights the issue. And I think what James is doing here is trying to highlight the issue, and I think he would say, look, all of us, even if we don't think we would do something like this, all of us are prone to judge others, to show partiality, to treat people differently, differently than they deserve, based on our own criteria that we have come up with. And that's the second problem here, right? Remember, you judge based on evil criteria. And there's all sorts of criteria that this could be. James highlights economic disparity here. We do tend to treat people differently if they have more money. And if it's obvious. This could be skin color. This could be age. This could be education level. It could be social position. Who you know? Whatever it may be, verse 4 tells us the real heart of the issue with favoritism or discrimination or partiality. Look at verse 4. Have you not? He asked two questions here. If you've done this, if in any way you've entered into partiality or favoritism based on external criteria, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Two questions here. First of all, he says, if you do this, you have made distinctions among yourselves. He expects a positive answer here. This is 
what you've done. Now, what does he mean by this? Made distinctions among yourselves. I mean, when you read this, or if you just think about it, practically speaking, aren't there real distinctions among us, right? I mean, there are real distinctions. Some people drive nicer cars. Some people dress better than others. Some people have more money than others. There are different skin colors among us, right? It's, it's the reality of the situation. There are differences among us. And we can say all we want that we don't notice those differences. I don't see skin color. I don't see wealth. But you do. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing to notice and be aware of and rejoice in the diversity that God has placed among us. It's not a sin to recognize these distinctions. It's not wrong. In fact, God has made us different, and that's one of the things that glorifies him and his work, is when diverse and different people come together and are united around the work of Jesus Christ. But that's not what James is talking about by making distinctions here. What he's talking about, and the problem with partiality is when those differences that are present make us start treating one another differently. When we start to treat one another as more or less important because of these differences. When we begin to assign moral value to these differences, that's when you enter into the sin of partiality. The poor man becomes less valuable than the rich man. It's not as important. Now, we would never say it like that. We would never say it out loud. But we sure would act like it at times. And when you and I begin to treat one another differently, when we view some people as more important or more valuable or less valuable because of external criteria, then that rips the unity of the body of Christ apart. That's what James is getting at here when he says you have made distinctions among yourselves. You have divided the body which God has placed together in unity. You are ripping apart the unity of Christ's body when you show partiality and make these unjust distinctions. And if there's one place in the world where everyone should be treated, every member of the body of Christ should be treated with dignity and respect and love and church. It's here. But that's only one of the problems. Look at the second one in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is the core issue. When we show partiality, when we show favoritism based on some external appearance, what we've really done is we have put ourselves in the position of the judge. We have said, I will be the judge and jury. I will be the one who determines who is valuable, what is valuable, what is to be honored. I become the standard. I determine the criteria. Now the problem with that, of course, is that there already is a judge. His name is God. And James fleshes this out in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 
Look what he says here. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That's right. We have this tendency to usurp God's position as the lawgiver and as the one who determines value and worth and importance. And when we show partiality, we become the judges who then use our own evil standards and criteria with which to judge people and to determine who is more and less valuable. Look again at the end of verse 4. Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Those evil thoughts are our man-made criteria for judgment, not God's criteria for who has value and who has worth. That leads us to our third problem. This is the last one we look at this morning, verses 5 through 7. So we judge based on evil criteria in verses 2 through 4, which is our own criteria. And then verses 5 through 7, because we use our own criteria, now we ignore God's judgment. This is the third problem. You ignore God's judgment. We completely neglect the way that God operates. And we don't care about the standards that he has put in place. I mean, we've already learned in chapter 1 how God values those who are needy and marginalized and on the edges of society. Look back to chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. God has a heart for those who are poor and needy and on the margins of society. These are the very type of people who would come into an assembly and look like this guy does in verses 2 and 3. They're, they're in tattered clothes. They're poor. Verse 5 makes a very similar point. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. He's continuing the thought of this section. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. He's expecting an affirmative answer here. Yes, this is how God operates. This is the criteria that he uses. When we show partiality, we're making up some external standard, and that standard becomes the basis for our favor, for our kindness. But God doesn't operate that way at all, does he? Why did you come to salvation? Pure grace. Pure grace. Nothing good in you. No external standard or criteria that you or I met is why we came to salvation. You aren't good looking enough to be saved. It's not your economic success that God thought, oh sweet, I could use that no impressive social circle that you run in. You're not a believer in Christ because you're smarter or faster or stronger or better at anything. 
You didn't come to Jesus because of the country that you're a part of. God tends to choose the least impressive people for salvation. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him and his grace, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is how God determines value and worth. This is his criteria. He determines to save the poor and the needy and the neglected because then he receives the honor and the glory when he uses them. But when we show partiality, what have we done? Man, we flipped all that on its head. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Right? opposite of the way God works. We're not judging based on his criteria and his value. We're judging based on our own. Worldly people tend to despise the poor. Worldly people make distinctions based on external evil criteria. That's not what God does. And so you're acting worldly, verse 6 would say, the beginning there, you're just dishonoring the poor man. And so there's not only that aspect of it where you're acting worldly, but really, if you just stop and think about it, it's actually crazy for us as believers who are poor and despised in the eyes of the world to be fawning over the affection of the rich. Why? Look at verse 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So here's the situation that James is writing to. Many of these believers were on the low end of the social spectrum. These were probably day laborers who were barely getting by. These were not important socially mobile people in the church. And so what he's saying to them is it makes no sense just functionally for you to take up a worldly standard of judgment because of what you've experienced in your own life, because of what you've been through. Rich and wealthy landowners during this time tended to exploit the poor. They tended to try to take their land from them and use them for their own ends. Now, James is not telling these believers to despise the rich. That would be partiality. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's saying, not that God doesn't save the rich as well, he certainly does. But what he's saying here is it doesn't make sense for believers to use worldly criteria to evaluate people. It doesn't make sense because you have been so often mistreated by those whom the world values. And not only have you been mistreated, but actually they they will persecute you for your faith and blaspheme the Lord. Look at verse 7 again. 
are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So it makes no sense for you to act in this way as opposed to God's criteria and judgment. So we have one more problem with partiality that we'll get to next week in verses 8 through 13. But think for a moment with me as we finish up, what really is the core sin problem in an attitude like this that treats people differently, that comes up with my own standards of criteria or absorbs those standards from the culture around me and then works them out in my daily life? Maybe I'm not even aware of that, the very definition of worldliness. But what's really at the root of this? What would make a person treat others differently and become the judge of who is valuable and who is not? When we do that, we're operating in pride and arrogance. That's really the root issue here. It's exalting myself, putting myself in a position of being the judge and becoming prideful, operating out of my pride. And I hope you can see just how damaging to the church and to the unity of the church operating in this sort of pride is. The sin of partiality destroys unity within the body. It undoes the harmony that should be among us. So what's the answer to this? I know this whole section in a lot of ways has a very negative tone to it. Don't do this. Don't do this. But what's the, what's the answer to partiality? How should we be dealing with one another? I think you see the answer in verse 5, and I think you'll see the answer again at the end in verses 12 and 13. Rather than judging harshly based on our own criteria, our own value system, we should deal with one another the same way that God deals with us. What is that? He deals with us in grace and mercy. Verse 5, and we saw that. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And then look down at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is how we deal with one another and maintain unity and harmony within the body. We give grace. We're patient. We're slow to frustration and anger. We show great mercy and kindness because that has been how you and I have been dealt with by our heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for our time together in your word this morning. We're thankful for this text. I pray that you would use the words of James 2 in our hearts Give us the opportunity to evaluate whether we judge based on unjust criteria, whether we've adopted worldly standards of value and worth. And then, Lord, help us to grow in our disposition to treat one another with mercy and grace and kindness as you have done with us. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. So this morning... We're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and so you should have your little uh, packet there.
of, uh, of the elements, and you can go ahead and get that out. But as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, we talked a lot about unity and harmony within the church, and how partiality disrupts that, that unity of the body of Christ. And at the root of that disruption and of partiality is the sin of pride and arrogance. And I think it's amazing, when you, when you think about the Lord's Supper, when you go back to where Paul addresses the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he's dealing with them and instructing them on the Lord's Supper really because they were demonstrating the sin of partiality. That's what they were doing. They were making distinctions among themselves based on economic criteria, and they were treating one another differently based on that. We listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions <coughs> among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul addresses them in very strong words because they're demonstrating the sin of partiality in the way that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together this morning, you be aware that one of the things that we're showing by this is our unity as the body of Christ. And partaking of this together means that we go out and then we act on that unity with one another. We demonstrate our unity, not just by taking these elements, but then by living this out in daily life and putting to death the sin of favoritism and partiality. So I want you to take a few moments this morning and just silently pray there, prepare your heart for this, and then I'll pray and we'll take the elements together, all right? So let me give you a couple seconds here to do that, and then I'll, I'll pray and we'll move forward. Father, we are so thankful for your grace to us. We're thankful for the work of Jesus Christ in giving us salvation despite our sin and our rebellion. You have been so merciful and kind to us. We're so thankful for, for that this morning. I pray that as we, as we take these elements, as we spend this time together, that you would deepen our appreciation for the grace that we've received, and then that we would bend that grace outwards toward others, and we would deal with one another as you have dealt with us. So we thank you for our time to reflect on that this morning. We pray that Christ would be honored and glorified.